One day a woman wanted to find out how her husband would react if she just left him without telling him why and where she was going. And so she wrote him a letter saying that she was tired of him and that she didn't want to live with him anymore. And after writing the letter, um, she put it on the table in the bedroom, but then she hid under the bed because she wanted to see how he would react. So her husband comes back home. He sees the letter. He reads it. And then he writes something else on it. And then he begins to sing and dance around the bedroom. He gets his phone out, dials someone and says, Hey, babe, just change in my clothes and then I'll join you. As for my silly wife, it's finally dawned on her that I've been fooling around behind her back and she's left. I was so wrong to marry her in the first place. I only wish I'd met you earlier. Okay, see you soon, honey. Well, the husband walks out of the room and his wife is shocked and devastated. She gets up from under the bed and she decides to go to see what he's written on the letter. And when she gets to the letter, it said, I could see your feet poking out under the bed, you idiot. I'm going out to buy some bread and milk. Get up, stop your silly games, and I'll be back in 10 minutes. I love you. In 1 Kings 18, we find a group of God's people who actually have committed adultery. They've committed spiritual adultery. They have rebelled and rejected their God. They have been unfaithful. Uh, At this time, there was a king called Ahab, who you may have heard of, but you probably have heard of his wife, Jezebel. Not the nicest woman in the world. Guys, don't bring anyone home for Sunday lunch called Jezebel. It's not a good start to a relationship. And uh, and, and she particularly, she was a foreign uh, queen who had married Israel's king. And she had turned the people away from worshipping the one true God, Yahweh, to worshipping her gods, Baal, Asherah. And she had tried to do away with all of God's prophets, all of God's people, so that her gods alone would have worship. And God had told his people what would happen if this is what they did. He had spoken to them hundreds of years before through Moses in the book of Deuteronomy. Look at what God had said. So if you faithfully obey the commands I am giving you today to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul, this is what God says. If you love me with all your heart and soul, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to send rain on your land in its season, both autumn and spring rains, so that you can gather in your grain, new wine and olive oil. I will provide grass in your fields for cattle and you will eat and be satisfied. Okay? So if you worship me alone, no other gods, I will rain on your land and you will be blessed. But be careful or you will be enticed to turn away from other gods and to bow down to them. Then the Lord's anger will burn against you. And this is what the result of that will be because sin has consequences. He will shut up the heavens so that it will not rain and the ground will yield no produce and you will soon perish from the good land God is giving you. So God gives us promise, this decree in his word hundreds of years before Elijah in the book of Deuteronomy. But Elijah is a prophet. He senses what God is thinking. He hears what God is saying. He knows what God is doing and where God is working. And even though this was written hundreds of years before, Elijah begins to sense in his spirit that that logos word, that word in in, in scripture is a rhema word for now. 
And sometimes that happens, isn't it? That maybe you've been at home reading the Bible and, and, and just a passage you've read a hundred times and it was written thousands of years ago. But something in your spirit, you just go, that's for me. God is speaking to me right now through that word. God is speaking to me through that passage. And Elijah senses in his spirit that now is the time when God is going to do what he says he's going to do in the book of Deuteronomy. Nowhere do we read that God told him to prophesy, but he was a man of prayer. And as he prayed, he got the heart of God. He released the prayer. He released the declaration. He released the word of God. And when the word of God is released, things happen. Things shift. Things shake. Things stop. And so Elijah goes to King Ahab and look at what he says in, in 1 Kings 17.1. Now Elijah, the Tishbite from Tishbe, I was always wondering what people from Tishbe were called, the Tishbites. And Gilead said to Ahab, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain for the next few years, except at my word, and for the next three and a half years, there's not a drop of rain. Now, I don't know about you, but no th- rain for three and a half years in Northern Ireland sounds kind of appealing to me. <laughs> I like the sun. I like the heat. I like dryness. I don't like the rain. But we don't live in a culture like this where everything depended on the rain. This was an agricultural culture, and rain meant everything. And no rain meant that there was a drought. And speaking of rain has made me thirsty. A drought. What's a drought? A drought is dryness. A drought is lifelessness. It's wilderness. It's no growth. It's barrenness. It's difficult places. And as I was thinking about this, I began to think about sometimes we have droughts in our own lives. Sometimes we have those dry places in our lives. Sometimes people speak about dry places. I just feel a bit dead. I feel a bit lifeless. I, spiritually, I, I feel dry. I don't know if you've ever said that. I know I have at times. Spiritually, I, I just I feel dry. I, I, I feel like there's not much happening in my life spiritually. I, I feel like I'm in a bit of a, a desert, a wilderness, a barren place. And, and here's the thing that Sometimes you can be doing really well in one part of your life, but have a drought in another part. See, when we see people who are doing well in one part, or people who are gifted in one part of their life, we tend to assume that every part of their life is good. So you could have a really good marriage, and people look at you as a couple and go, they've got a great marriage, but they don't know about your wayward child. You could have a beautiful home, but you don't have any love in that home to fill it with laughter. You might have a a great job, but your relationships are suffering because you're spending so much time working. You might have great finances, but no close friendships. You could be excelling in some part of your life, but emotionally and psychologically and mentally, you could be really struggling. You could have a dry place. I know some churches that have all the structures and all the systems and everything seems to be great. It's like a well-oiled machine. They have all the structures, but they have no spirit. They're dry. Do you ever go to a church and you go, you know what, everything in this place just feels good, but it just feels dry. Like everything's fine on the surface, but there's a dryness. It's just, I just, there's a dryness here. There's no sense of God's presence. And here's the thing. In the drought, the rivers and the streams and the lakes dried up, okay? 
That was the first thing that happened. But the next thing to happen, if the rivers and the lakes and the streams and there's no rain, what happens next? The crops start, stop growing. The grass doesn't grow. There's no water for people to drink. And as the crops start grow, stop growing and as the grass stops growing, what happens to the animals? They begin to starve. And so there's no food for the people. There's no water for the people. There was a famine. And that's what, exactly what we read in 18 verse 2. Now the famine was severe in Samaria. And I, I was thinking about that. The famine was severe. They're focusing on the famine, but the problem wasn't the famine. The problem was the drought. The people were trying to fix the famine when the famine was simply a result of the drought and the drought was simply a result of God's people sinning. You see, sometimes we're trying to fix the wrong issue. Sometimes we're trying to fix the wrong thing. We're trying to deal with the surface issue because that's the most obvious thing and we want to, it's the one that affects us most and we're trying to relieve the pain of a surface wound when really the surface wound is simply a symptom of a much deeper issue in our lives. Take addiction to a substance or drugs or alcohol. You can try by sheer willpower to stop taking that substance. And you might work for a while. But the reality is that you're probably addicted to that substance or you started out taking that substance because you were trying to numb the pain of something else in your life. You were trying to block out reality. You were trying to comatose yourself from whatever was going on around you. You were trying to fill an emptiness, a void inside, because it was too difficult to deal with. Take relationships. I have friends who really struggle to commit in relationships. You can guess that they're probably guys. You'd just be, the girls are like, yeah, that's just men. Um, no, I have friends who really struggle and they want to get married, but every time they start a relationship that seems to be going well, they sabotage it. And so they keep breaking up and thinking, if I just meet the perfect girl, if I just meet the perfect girl, and, uh, and they go from girl to girl to girl to girl to girl. And the issue isn't the girl. The issue isn't the relationship. The issue is something else that they were maybe hurt. Maybe they're from a family where a mom walked out. Maybe, And so they're, they're trying to deal with the surface issue of relationships and actually the deeper issue is something that maybe happened 10, 15, 20 years ago. Think of it like this. And this isn't the most pleasant way on a Sunday morning before your Sunday lunch to think of it. Imagine a big pile of manure. You've got a big pile of manure in your garden or in your yard. And what does manure attract? Flies. You've got flies starting to buzz around and you keep trying to swat the flies. You keep trying to kill the flies. You've got fly killer. You've got fly spray. You're constantly trying to, you spend your life trying to get rid of the flies. Instead of trying to get rid of the flies, why don't you just get rid of the manure? Because if you deal with the manure, you've dealt with the flies. See, we're trying to deal with the surface issue without getting to the source and the root of the problem. If you don't fix the drought, you can't fix the famine. If you don't deal with the root issues and the deeper issues, you will never deal with the surface issues that those things are causing. And that's exactly what we see here with God's people, Israel. The famine seemed to be the presenting problem, but the famine wasn't really the problem. The drought was causing the famine, and God's people sinning and committing idolatry was causing the drought. 
And in chapter 18, when we read this, after a long time in the third year, the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Go and present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the land. God says, you know what? I want to send rain. I want to end the drought. But first of all, we've got to deal with what caused the drought. And what caused the drought? God's people sinning. God's people worshipping Baal, Asherah, following other gods. And so we don't have time to go through it. But if you were to go through chapter 18, and it might be worth doing later, chapter 18 of 1 Kings, we have this standoff on Mount Carmel where Elijah challenges 850 false prophets of Baal and Asherah. It's the Old Testament equivalent of the OK Corral. We have Elijah on one side, 850 crazy false prophets on the other side. They set up two fires and they call down fire from heaven. And these guys over here, the 850 false prophets are screaming and they're cutting themselves and, and Elijah's taunting them. He's funny. He's going, maybe your God's at the toilet. Maybe cry louder. He's just totally taking the mick out of them. Uh, and, and nothing's happening. So he, it's his turn now. He goes, let's pour some water. Now, where he got the water, I don't know, because it was a drought. But nobody ever thinks about that. Um, he says, go and get buckets of water. You know what? Sometimes it's costly to get a sacrifice from God. But, but, but they pour water on it, and Elijah calls down fire from heaven, and the thing burns up. And everybody visibly sees that Elijah, Elijah's God is the real God, and Elijah means my God is the real God. Elijah demonstrates that Yahweh's power is so much greater than Baal's power and Asherah's power. All the people see it, and here's what they do. They turn on the false prophets and they slaughter them all. All 850 of them. Which might sound harsh to us, but it's no harsher than cutting out a tumor from a body that is cancerous. Because if you don't cut out the tumor, the whole body dies. Sometimes we look at the Old Testament and we think, goodness, look at what happened? These people were, you know what? Sometimes God has to take drastic measures to save the whole thing. And that's what we see here. And so they've dealt with the problem. What was the problem? The worship of other gods. The people have repented of their sin. And so if the root problem was the worship of false gods and they've dealt with it, look at the next verse, verse 41. And Elijah said to Ahab, Go eat and drink, for there is the sound of a heavy rain. They've dealt with the deeper issue that was causing the famine. And so on the basis of God's word, God's word that declared the famine, but God's word also said that if you follow me faithfully, I will, lift, I will reign in your land. On the basis of God's word, Elijah declares there's going to be rain. The rains are coming. God speaks to Elijah's spirit and tells him that he's going to release the abundance of rain. And Elijah speaks out what he senses. He declares what God has said. Look at what he tells King Ahab. There is the feeling of heavy rain. There is the sight of heavy rain. No. There is a smell, because sometimes if you're in the dry land, you can smell the rain before you see it. No. There's a sound of heavy rain. Is it raining yet? No. It's not even close to raining. If you go down to the next few verses, in fact, you'll see there's not even a single cloud in the sky. So when Elijah says he hears the sound of rain, it's not a physical sound he hears. That's why he has to tell King Ahab. 
That's why he had, nobody else can hear the sound apart from Elijah. It wasn't a physical sound that they could hear with their ears, but Elijah could hear it. Why? Here's the key. Your proximity to God will determine what you hear. How close you are to God will determine what you hear. In the next chapter, when Elijah's hiding in a cave, God comes to him, and what does it say? He came in a still, small voice. Most often when God comes to us, he doesn't come with a megaphone shouting. He comes with a whisper. And you know what the thing about a whisper is? To hear a whisper, two things are required. You've got to be quiet, and you've got to be close. If I whisper to you, and you're not quiet, and you're not close, you can't hear me. And that's how God speaks. And Elijah's a man who is quiet and close to God. It's a bit like if you were driving to Dublin, and if you were listening to Cool FM, or if you're Emily listening to Country FM, um, and uh, you're listening to some Belfast radio station. The further you drive south, what happens? The weaker the signal. You can start getting static. And eventually, the transmission disappears completely. Some of us want to hear God's voice, but we want to have a long-distance relationship with him. Some of us want to hear God's voice, want to see God do things in our lives, but we want to keep our distance from him. The closer you are to God, the more likely you are to hear his voice speak in your life. Prayer is not a ritual burden to endure. It's a relational blessing that we get to enjoy. And God partners with his people when we pray. We get access to the secrets of his heart. His Holy Spirit. As New Testament believers, his Holy Spirit comes and lives within us. And we have a human spirit. And his Holy Spirit takes up residence in our human spirit. And his Holy Spirit begins to communicate with our human spirit. And that we can speak out what God is saying to us. We can see it created. We can see it established around us. As God's spirit speaks to our spirit and our mouths declare what God is saying, we begin to see our circumstances look like what he said. So Elijah senses the rain. He senses the rain in his spirit, even though he can't see it with his circumstances. And sometimes God, God's Holy Spirit speaks, and we sense that things are moving. We sense that things are changing. We don't see it in our circumstances, but we just sense it. Some of you will know exactly what I mean. You're unemployed, but you sense that something is going to change. You're single, but you sense that there's somebody coming that could be a potential partner for you. You, you're, you're, you know, before we had Elijah, before we knew we were pregnant, well, mostly Becky um, was pregnant. I just was eating to compensate or to, to support her. Before we knew Becky knew she was pregnant, before she'd had a test, and she sensed it. She just knew. Sometimes we sense things before we have any evidence Sometimes we sense God's doing something new. Sometimes we sense God's moving us on. Sometimes we sense God is, is, is calling us to a new role, a new task, a new ministry, a new place, a new job, whatever that is. We sense it, and it's just a sense, but we don't see it yet. We've got this download inside us that no one else can see. It's in here before it's out there. It's invisible, it's intangible, it's untouchable, at least for now. And all around you might look like drought and barrenness and famine, but you know that that's not the final word. Why? Because you hear the sound. You hear the sound of rain. You know it's coming. 
And like Elijah, before the rain could come, some things had to be removed. They had to remove anything that was blocking the blessing of God. And if we want to see and experience the blessing of God in our lives, sometimes things have to be removed. You can't live like that and expect to see that. You can't live with habitual ongoing sin in your life and expect God to bless that sin. You can't expect peace and purity in your life while you're looking at things that are taking away your peace and purity. You can't expect good relationships in your life if you're treating people like rubbish and speaking to them harshly. You can't expect to feel peace inside and joy if you're filled with bitterness and anger and unresentment or unforgiveness and resentment towards other people. So sometimes to get what we want, to get what God has promised, we can't hold on to that. We've got to let go of that if we want to get that, just as Israel had to let go of their false worship and their idolatry if they wanted to get the blessings of God. God will not bless your sin. God will not bless your disobedience. You won't be able to see this if you're content to live with that, birthing the promise. So Ahab, verse 42. Ahab went off to eat and drink, but Elijah climbed to the top of Carmel, bent down to the ground, and put his face between his knees. Notice the difference in response of these two men. Ahab the king, who has been leading the land in famine for three and a half years, what does he do? He goes off to feast. He goes off to have a feed with the boys. What does Elijah do? Elijah climbs to the top of a mountain where there's isolation, where there's solitude. He wants to get alone with God. He wants to pray in what God has promised. And look at his position. He bent down to the ground with his face between his knees. This is what he's like. He's blocking out all distractions. To see God's promise, he knows that he can't be distracted by the circumstances around him. He can't be listened to the voices around him. He blocks out distractions. He gets there, but there's something else I think happening. You see, in those days, they didn't have maternity wards. They didn't have stirrups and all those things that, that we have today when, when women are given birth, which I have no idea and I don't even want to start thinking about. They didn't have any of those comfy places that women go today to have those beautiful little babies. I know. I'm an expert. I was a mile away. No. Um, but you know what they did? They had what they called a birthing stool. Now, this is, I'm not going to demonstrate this. But, but you know what position the woman went in? Exactly the position that Elijah's in. She crouched down with her head between her knees. And somebody said, Persh. And she pushed. Persh. 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 And she kept pushing on that birthing stool. Exactly. The, and, and those reading this, those back in Elijah's day would have known exactly what that position was because that's what they had seen many times women doing on the birthing stool. And Elijah is pregnant here with a word from God. Elijah is pregnant with a promise from God and he's birthing a miracle. It's in his spirit right now. It's just a seed. He hears the rain, but as he looks around him, all he sees is drought. Sometimes what we see around us doesn't seem to line up with what God has said to us. 
And so he starts to travail in prayer. He starts to push. There's a gestation. The seed is germinating. It's growing. It's forming. It's developing. He's pushing. He's pushing because he knows what God has said and he won't give up until what God has said matches what he sees around him. You know, Christians talk a lot about breakthrough. It's one of those words, isn't it? Breakthrough. We're going for breakthrough. We want to see God do breakthrough. We want breakthrough. We want to see breakthrough in our marriage. We want to see breakthrough in our finances. We want to see breakthrough in our church. You know what breakthrough is? It's when you sense, it's when what you sense in your spirit breaks through into your life. In childbirth, they call it crowning. Crowning is just when you see the top of the head. Such a tiny portion of the baby. And yet you know that When you see the top of the head, when you see the crown, the rest is on its way. And that's exactly the same with Elijah. Look at the next few verses. Go and look towards the sea, he told his servant. And he went up and looked. There's nothing there, he said. Seven times Elijah said, go back. The seventh time the servant reported, a cloud as small as a man's hand is rising from the sea. So Elijah said, go and tell Ahab, hitch up your chariot and go down before the rain stops you. So Elijah is pushing. He's pushing through in prayer. He's pushing through. He's pushing. And he sends a servant. He keeps saying, go and see. Go look into the horizon. Is there any rain? No. Go again. Is there any rain? No. Six times he does this. Is there any rain? No. Now after three or four times, I might get a little bit discouraged. I might be thinking, maybe I heard this wrong from God. Because there's nothing, there's nada, there's zilch, there's zero, there's nothing happening. And sometimes God gives you a word and you're praying and nothing seems to change. And you begin to think, did God really say? You begin to think, am I wasting my time? Should I just give up? I thought God spoke to me. I believe God's promise, but nothing is changing in my circumstances. Imagine if Elijah here after four times or five times had just given up. I've had enough. This is not happening. This is not working. I'm going back down to do something else. But Elijah keeps contending. He keeps pushing. He keeps praying. Because just because you didn't, you can't see it yet doesn't mean God didn't say it. And the seventh time. And seventh is the number of completion in the Bible. Seven times they walked around the walls. Seven times. Seven. Seven times. And the seventh time, the servant comes back and he says, you know what? I I see something out there. I see a cloud, but it's it's not big. It's just just the size of, of, of a man's hand. And that's all Elijah needs to hear. Like the crowning of a head in birth, Elijah knows the rest. It's on its way. He's got his breakthrough. It's not invisible, but it seems insignificant right now. And God often does the big things in our lives by starting small. Big doors move on small hinges. Small things can meet big needs. Think about the next prophet after Elijah, Elisha. Goes to a woman's house. She's about to sell her kids to, because she's no oil, and, 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 and she's no food, she's no nothing. And Elijah says, what do you have? She says, I've just a little. He says, start to pour out the little bit. And the little bit keeps flowing and flowing and flowing. Think about the little boy with the five loaves and two fishes. Doesn't look like a lot. God can do a little with a lot. And sometimes we need to get better at celebrating the small beginnings. 
You know, we live in a world that's obsessed with the big, with the grand. And even in the church world, we're obsessed with the big churches and the mega church, particularly in America and some of the conferences I go to. It's like you're standing in the bathroom. How big's your church? How big's your church? You know, it's like a pain contest, you know. And, and it's like, it's like, you know, I saw one guy had my church is bigger than your church on a t-shirt once, you know. And I can get to, you know what, let's celebrate the small. Yes, in my spirit, there's a picture of what a church is going to be. What that church can't be, but you know what, I celebrate what we are. I celebrate every single person who walked into this room this morning. Yes, it's not what I see in my spirit, but it's God's small beginning. And I celebrate the small beginnings. I celebrate the little things. Because if you don't celebrate the little things, you will never see the big things. It took three and a half years for them to get here. But things are starting to turn around. And look at what he tells Ahab. Hitch up your chariot and go down before the rain stops you. In other words, you need to prepare for what hasn't happened yet. You need to get ready for what hasn't happened yet. Even though you can't see it, you need to get ready for it. You know, I became a Christian just before my 15th birthday. And over the next two years, I probably got about eight prophetic words about church and leadership and being in ministry and all of those things. And those things were not God saying at 16 I was going to go into the ministry. It wasn't him saying you need to go at 17 to theological college. It was start getting ready. Start preparing. Get into my word. I used to take every opportunity to speak. I remember when I was 19, I was asked to speak in Balamina Academy. I didn't have a car. I remember getting the train, getting a bus, getting a taxi, getting a taxi, getting a bus and getting a train home. Cost me more. I think they gave me five pounds or something like that. Generosity wasn't a big thing. But, 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 but I, you know what? I just wanted to speak anywhere. I would take every opportunity because I knew God had called me to do. And if God has called you to do something, take every opportunity that you can to do it. Start getting ready. Start getting ready. Start getting ready. Dress for where you're going, not for where you are. And I started getting all these prophetic words and I've probably seen 80% of them fulfilled and I've still 20% to see if I'm written in the back of a Bible at home. But I know on the basis of the 80 that I'm going to see the 20. Maybe God's speaking to you about a career change. Maybe God's speaking to you about something he wants you to do, a ministry, a, a relationship, a Something he wants to change in your life and you're, you're sitting and you're going, right, Lord, I'm waiting on you. And God's going, no, I'm waiting on you to start getting ready. I'm waiting on you to start preparing. Do you know when, this isn't, we, we had got plateaued in Dublin in our church at 220, which was a nice number. 220 was a lovely number. Things were going great. The finances were great, but we had plateaued. And we made a decision, even though we didn't have the money, we thought if we're going to grow, we need to plan for 500. We had 220, we needed to plan. We took on staff that we couldn't really afford part-time. We took on four or five staff in 12 months because we wanted a church for 500. And the next year after that, we went from 220 to 350 because we prepared for the people who were coming. As a church, you know what we need to do? Yes, we want to feed and meet the needs of the people who are here. We also want to prepare for those people who aren't here yet. We want to prepare for the people who live within a 10-mile radius of us, who don't go to church, who don't know Jesus. Yes, we're thankful for what we have, but we prepare for that which God is going to send us. 
We need to start thinking. We need vision. We need God's heartbeat. We need to hear the sound of the abundance of rain. And we need to prevail in prayer. And this is where I'm going to finish today. In the New Testament, James. James is the half-brother of Jesus. And he's talking about prayer and James's knees, apparently, there's a, 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 a story about James, the half-brother of Jesus, that his knees were actually flat because he had spent so much time in prayer. And he's talking about prayer. And as, as an example of prayer, he uses this story of Elijah in James chapter 5. Look at what he says. Elijah was a human being, even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain in the land for three and a half years. Again he prayed, and the heavens give rain. And the earth produced its crops. You see, we read some of these stories in the Old Testament and it says there Elijah was a man just like us. And I go, you know what, he sounds more like Superman. He sounds like a superhero. Like he called down fire from heaven. I can't even get the microwave working off the stage, you know. Like, and apparently with a dishwasher at home as well, and it's, it's actually a real dishwasher. Uh, my wife tells me that it doesn't load and unload itself. Um, you know, like he called, and we read about these people, and, and it says Elijah was a man just like us. He was a person just like you. He wasn't Superman. He wasn't Spider Man. He wasn't Batman. He wasn't Axe Man. He was a man just like you and me. And yet he was able to call on the power of God. He was a man who knew how to tap into heaven's power and release the resources of heaven here on earth. You know, we have electricity at home. We all have electricity at home, I I could gather. And electricity is is simply this. It's power conveyed through wires all throughout our house. It's really simple. We can't physically see electricity, but we know it's there because we see the effect of it on our lights, on our appliances, on the dishwasher, on the washing machine, on the television. We see the effects, but we can't actually see the electricity. But here's the thing. Electricity needs a point of contact. Electricity needs a point of contact. To give us the power we need, the invisible electricity needs a visible point of of contact. It could be a light we switch, it could be a TV we turn on, it could be a, a, a cooker we turn on. The power is there, the provision is available, but without a point of contact, nothing happens and we can't benefit from what the electricity has to offer. So if you don't, if you flick, no, okay, if you don't flick on a light switch and you're stumbling in the dark, it's not a power problem, it's not a provision problem, it's a contact problem. Yeah? If you go into your house and you trip over stuff and it's dark, it's not a power problem, it's not a provision problem. It's a point of contact problem. You haven't turned on the light. And all throughout the Bible, God has told us what he wants to do here on earth. He has given us promises. Some of us have got prophetic words. He has decreed his will and his word. He's made known the power of the provision that he's made available to us as believers. But for us to see and experience it in our own lives, there must be a point of contact between earth and heaven. And many people believe in God's power as a theory, but they aren't seeing his provision as reality because they don't understand that prayer is the point of contact that bursts the promises and provision of the heavens here on earth. Prayer, whether that be intercession, prophetic prayer, declarations, decrees, whatever form prayer takes, prayer is the one thing that God has established for us as humans to see his power 
made manifest here on earth. See, in Genesis 1-6, God created man and woman. And he said, I give you dominion. I give you authority. I give you rulership over the earth. I delegate authority and responsibility to you, you as human beings, to rule here on earth. It makes it very clear in Psalm 115. The heavens belong to the Lord, but earth he has given to mankind. So God lives in the invisible spiritual realm, which we call the heavens. We live in the physical visible realm, which we call the earth. How do we take the invisible spiritual realm and all that God has made available and bring it into the physical visible realm here on earth? There's only one way that God has given us, and that is prayer. Prayer is the only thing that God says, bring heaven to earth. His kingdom come, his will be done here on earth as in heaven. How did he teach us that? In prayer. Prayer is the point of contact. Prayer does not make God do anything he does not want to do, but it releases his power and authority to do what he has already intended to do. God is sovereign, let me tell you this. I believe wholeheartedly that our God is sovereign, but in his sovereignty, he has chosen to delegate a huge amount of authority and responsibility to his people, more than we would even want to imagine that he has. John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, said this, God does nothing but an answer to prayer. That's a strong statement, isn't it? God does nothing but an answer to prayer. And maybe that's why John Wesley saw revivals everywhere he went. There are things in your life, in our church, in our community, in this nation, that if we pray, things will go one way, and if we don't pray, things will go another way. You see, we are so sera, whatever will be, will be. And God is saying, no, it's not whatever will be, will be. It is if my people pray, if my people will humble themselves, if they will get on their knees, if they will call to heaven and bring heaven down, I will change their land, I will change our nation, I will change our community, I will change their lives. But if they don't, then nothing happens. Remember one situation in Lurgan. We were in a guy's small group and, and one night one of the guys in the group was talking about his brother-in-law David who wasn't a Christian and he really wanted to see his brother-in-law David become a Christian. And so the five or six of the guys in the group, I, I said this to them, why don't for the next month all of us say that we're going to pray for David every day? Why don't we covenant and commit together every day for the next 30 days we're going to pray for David and see what God does? 17 days later, I got a text from my friend saying David had come to faith in Christ. 17 days. Because when we pray, when God's people pray, the heavens move. Blindness is removed from people's eyes. Darkness is removed from our land. God has decreed what is available to us. It's all in his word. He's decreed his power available to us. But when we pray, we're taking hold of the promises of heaven. And we're bringing them to earth. We're grabbing. Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is at hand. When we pray, we're taking handfuls of heaven. And we're bringing them to earth. And we're not going to let go until we see God transform our lives, our families, our church, our community, and our country. And we finish with a story. It's one of my favorite stories about the power of prayer. It's, about, it's from a book called Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire by Jim Sambala, the pastor of the Brooklyn Tabernacle in New York. It's a great book, Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire. And he begins by sharing a time of, of struggle within his family. He says, all this talking about prayer 
faced a severe test several years ago when Carl, that's his wife, and I went through the darkest two and a half years we could ever imagine. Our daughter Chrissy had been a model child growing up, but around 15, 16, she started to stray. She started to run away from home. She started to get involved with people that we didn't want her to get involved with. She had a boyfriend that was everything we didn't want from our daughter. He says, I begged, I pleaded, I tried everything, I scolded, I argued, I tried to control her with money. Nothing worked. It just hardened her heart even more. He says eventually she just ran away from home completely at 16. And he says it broke our hearts. And they have a a Tuesday prayer meeting in their church. He says one cold Tuesday night during the prayer meeting, he talked about the church boldly calling on God in the face of persecution. He says we entered into a time of prayer. Everybody reaching out out to the Lord together. He says an usher came and handed him a note. A young woman who was spiritually sensitive said that she felt that they should stop the prayer meeting and start praying for Jim Sambala's daughter, Chrissy. He didn't know what to do. He felt it was wrong as a pastor for them to focus on him and his needs. But he also felt the Spirit saying, this is from me. You need to start praying for your daughter. And so he shared for the first time the struggles that he was having with Chrissy with his church. He poured out his heart. He wept. He told them where she was. And he said, please, will you cry out with me for my daughter? He said, the sanctuary filled up with groans. And this is the words he said reminiscent of a labor room, just like Elijah. They groaned. They were birthing something as prayers for her poured out of the hearts of the people present. Then he says, the story continues 32 hours later. I was shaving when Carol burst through the door. That's his wife, and her eyes were wide. She said, go downstairs. Chrissy's here. I wiped off the shaving foam and headed down the stairs. My heart pounded. As I came round the corner, I saw my daughter on the kitchen floor, rocking on her hands and knees, sobbing. She grabbed my trouser leg and began pouring out her anguish. My eyes were filled with tears. I pulled her up from the floor and held her as close as I could, and we cried together. But suddenly she drew back and she said, Daddy, Daddy, who was praying for me? Who was praying for me? He says her voice was like a cross-examining lawyer. On Tuesday night, Daddy, who was praying for me? When her father didn't respond to her question, she continued, in the middle of the night, on Tuesday night, God woke me and showed me I was heading towards an abyss. There was no bottom to it. It scared me to death. I was so frightened. I realized how hard I've been, how wrong, how rebellious. But at the same time, it was like God wrapped his arms around me and held me tight. He kept me from sliding further as he said, I still love you. Just months later, Chrissy was enrolled in Bible college. She lives in the Midwest with her husband, who's a pastor. They have three children. But Pastor Jim Sambala ends the story with the following comment. He says this. Through all of this, Carl and I learned, as never before, that persistent calling upon the Lord breaks through every stronghold of the devil, for nothing is impossible with God. Amen.